So last time we were together, we finished there at verse 18, Ephesians 5.18, which is a command. You remember it's a continuous command. It's a passive command, uh, which means the Holy Spirit is the one doing this work in you. You can't do it. He does it in you. So look at verse 18. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So the question for today is, are you Spirit-controlled? So God commands you to be Spirit-controlled, allow the Holy Spirit to control you, but what does that look like? What does the Spirit's control in our lives actually look like? How does it manifest itself in and through us. Well, if you have a literal translation, a good literal Bible translation, uh, this is easy. This is really easy if you know English grammar because at least my ESV tells me what this looks like by words that end in ing. So in the ESV, for example, in some of your other Bibles, I, I don't know what all your translations are, but if you have a Bible that that has these words ending in ing, that tells you they're Greek participles, and they're all pointing back and modifying the Greek command there in verse 18. So that command, be filled with the Spirit, is then shown to us in the next verses. And and you know what they are, because a good translation will, will have four words ending in ing. So that tells you what it looks like if you are controlled by the Holy Spirit. All right, does that make sense? So, let's read these precious words together from the Word of God. So, verse 19 says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That ends that paragraph. So the proposition from this text here should be pretty clear, based on verse 18, that God wants you to be controlled by the Spirit. God wants you to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And He gives us four marks of Spirit control in our lives. There's four marks, and they're in your notes there. And I'll give them to you one at a time here. Starting with this first one, that a spirit-filled person or controlled person fellowships in corporate worship. A spirit-controlled person fellowships in corporate worship. As, As verse 19 tells us, that first Greek participle is addressing. The word addressing. And that verse... There, verse 19 is, is referring to Christian fellowship with other Christians because notice it mentions you're doing this with one another. right? You, you don't do this by yourself, in other words. You do it with other Christians. And what, what are you doing with other Christians? Notice it mentions this, you're addressing one another with something, There's an object here, and it is, notice, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, is that obvious? I hope it's obvious that 
that all those things are indicating here the context is referring to a public corporate worship. So the result of a of the Spirit's control in our lives is that whenever Christians assemble, have you noticed when Christians assemble, what do we love to do? And the answer is not eat food and drink coffee. Okay, yes, we do that. The correct answer, because people who aren't spirit-controlled can drink coffee and eat food, right? The correct answer is, is, what do we do? We sing both to God and to each other. Now, notice I just said there's two things, because a lot of Christians agree with the point, yeah, I sing to God, but they have you ever thought about the truth? When you're, when you're singing in corporate worship, you're singing to the Christians around you as well. You're singing to them too. You're edifying them, building them up. So are you fellowshipping in this way? It's one of those forms of fellowship. It's a, it's a sharing. It's a community aspect when you're singing to each other. So are you singing to each other? I hope you are. Uh, that one's <clears throat> short. The other ones get longer. But because uh, I want to park on some of these other ones here. But notice, second of all, the, the second mark of a spirit-controlled person is that the spirit-controlled person worships God with music. So it's, it's kind of going hand-in-hand hand with that, that first one. But, uh, yes, there's an aspect of music here. So, and by the way, wh- whether or not you have a, a good voice, it doesn't matter. The spirit-filled or controlled Christian is a singing Christian. Singing Christians, by the way, show that it, 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 through their singing that they are uh, fulfilled, that they are content, they are happy. I'm always concerned about when, when I go to a church and I, and I see people, usually they're in the back, uh, often hands, arms folded, and when they're not singing, that, that's revealing something inside them, and it's not a good thing. Because Jesus said it's, it's out of our heart comes, you know, the stuff coming out of our mouth, right? So it shows a heart issue. I mean, uh, unless you're sick or something. Yeah, sometimes we're sick and we don't sing or whatever. But but if this is a lifestyle, wow, uh, that, that, that dear person needs um, to have their heart addressed. So, but notice here, worshiping God specifically with music. Because verse 19 is talking about how we're addressing one another in the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Well, let's, let's address every one of those phrases with some questions, okay? So, a, a, a spirit-controlled person is worshiping God with music, but what, what does that look like? And we need to answer this question here. Among whom do believers sing? Among whom do believers sing? Now notice the answer is right there in the text. The primary audience, as I've already said, uh, it, it, when we are singing in corporate worship, you are, you are, in this context, notice it's mentioning the fellow believers. Yes, you're worshiping God, but you're also singing to your fellow believers. So it, it says one another. And it's interesting, no music in the Bible is 
ever characterized or is intended to be evangelistic. Now, if you heard what I just said and understand what I just said, th- this is significant because there's there's a lot of churches who've taken their their singing aspect of worship and they've turned it into a, an opportunity to be evangelistic. See, remember, your theology always drives your methodology. And if you have bad theology, you're going to end up with that philosophy and, and methodology where you turn the music time into a time of evangelism. Never, never, God never intended it to be that way. However, God can and sometimes does use the gospel content in our, in our music to, to bring the truth to lost people and to lead them to himself. So if, if unsaved people are in the, the church when we're singing, hopefully they're hearing truth, gospel truth. Nothing wrong with that. But evangelism is not the purpose of Christian music. In fact, Romans 10, 17 reminds us that faith doesn't come through music, right? Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Now, I've, I've got some great quotes today. I, I just couldn't resist. And, and sorry, they're long, but uh, they are really good. I, I really appreciate what these commentators have said, and there's no way that I could even try to reword them and and make them sound as good as this. So here's a question for you to consider, because some 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 people have um, have wondered about the, the contemporary entertainers of our of our day, and uh, many churches have been taken over by this. So let me just address this particular issue, because notice we are among whom do believers sing? We are singing to one another. But contemporary entertainers are, are quite um, well-known these days in many circles. So here's what one, one commentator said, quote, Many contemporary entertainers who think they are using their rock-style music to evangelize the lost are often doing nothing more than contributing to the weakening of the church. Evangelizing with contemporary music has many serious flaws. Here they are. It tends to create pride in the musicians rather than humility. It makes the gospel a matter of entertainment when there is not one thing in it that is it that is at all entertaining. It makes the public proclaimers of Christianity those who are popular and talented in the world's eyes rather than those who are godly and gifted teachers of God's truth. In using the world's genres of music, it blurs the gap between worldly satanic values and divine ones. It tends to deny the power of the simple gospel and the sovereign saving work of the Holy Spirit. It creates a wide generation gap in the church, thus contributing to the disunity and lack of intimacy in the fellowship of all believers. It leads to the propagation of bad or weak theology and drags the name of the Lord down to the level of the world. The music of the gospel is certainly not a legitimate means for making money or seeking fame, and it must never be allowed to cheapen what is priceless or trivialize what is profound, end quote. I say amen to that. So when you're singing, take it seriously. It is a serious matter. So you're singing to one another. But how do believers sing? That's the second question. How do 
believers sing. Well, notice the Bible says that if you are controlled by the Spirit, then you're going to be speaking in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. Now, some of your Bibles say speaking. That, that, that word, if, if, if it says that, that word includes any sound that is offered to God from a Spirit-filled heart. So it, it, it doesn't have to necessarily be words, but it, anything, any sound offered to God. And, and the word, the, these words here, let me try to explain them. It's, it's very hard to, to do so. So in some sense, these words are a bit vague and, and kind of overlap in some ways. So let me try to explain the word psalms. Uh, that's probably the most obvious one out of the three there. Psalms refers primarily to those Old Testament psalms that we have in our in our Bible. We call that the Psalter. They were the uh, the Old Testament hymn book, if you will. Uh, these these psalms were originally put to music, but it's it's also a, a term that was used to vocal music of any sort. Hymns there refers primarily to songs of praise. I'll explain that in a in a moment, but and then you got the spiritual songs is probably the kind of songs uh, that we sing when it's it's a testimony type song of what what God is doing or has done in our life. Uh, for example, in the church today, some of these would be uh, here's what here's what they might look like. For example, when we sing a rendition a rendition of Psalm 23, we have several. Uh, I shall not want. Um, Songs like that, that would obviously be a psalm. When we sing, A mighty fortress is our God. A mighty fortress is our God. Right? Beautiful song written by Martin Luther back in the 1500s. That's a hymn. It's, it's, it's great praise to God. Uh, but if we... If we sing a, a spiritual song, which is a song of testimony, uh, that might be something like, Oh, how He loves you and me. Oh, how He loves you and me. Right? Uh, just the, Or I'd rather have Jesus. Or, there's a number of songs of testimony. They're in that testimony category of the hymn boy. Right? So that, that, that's kind of a general way to think about how are we singing to each other? Those are different styles of songs. And the word singing in your Bible, because notice it says you're, you're singing and making melody here. Well, singing there's you, obviously you're singing with your voice. <laughs> kind of obvious. But in the New Testament, it was always used in relation to praising God. So that's, that's the object. And notice it's, uh, even in our text here, it mentions in verse 19, you're singing and making melody to who? To the Lord. And so the making melody there means you're uh, to pluck on a stringed instrument. So you can make melody to the Lord even without singing through your music. But it's interesting that word came to represent the making of any instrumental music. And you say, well, what's the point? Well, a spirit-controlled person expresses themselves not just in singing, but you can even do it in playing an instrument. You can do it even in playing an instrument, a violin, a trumpet, or whatever, right? Or a saxophone. <laughs> Some of you play that, right? So 
So it's not just referring to singing. You can also worship God by playing an instrument. A third question to consider is from where do believers sing? From where do believers sing? Notice in this context here, believers are singing from their heart. Obviously, that's not referring to the organ in your body pumping the blood. That's your your inner being. And so even as Christians, we will not have a true song in our hearts unless we are under the Spirit's control. We must be under the Spirit's control, yielded to Him uh, for this to take place. Again, one commentator had a really helpful comment here. Uh, I quote, it's on the screen here for you, says this, The pulsating rhythms of native African music mimics the restless, superstitious passions of their culture and religion. The music of the Orient is dissonant and unresolved, going from nowhere to nowhere, with no beginning and no end, just as the religions go from cycle to cycle and endless repetitions of meaningless existence, like Buddhism, Hinduism, for example. Uh, Their music, like their destiny, is without resolution. The music of much of the Western world is the music of seduction and suggestiveness, a musical counterpart of the immoral, lustful society that produces, sings, and enjoys it. Rock music, with its bombastic atonality and dissonance, is the musical mirror of the hopeless, standardless, purposeless philosophy that rejects both God and reason and floats without orientation in a sea of relativity and unrestrained self-expression. The music has no logical progression because it comes from a philosophy that renounces logic. It violates the brain because its philosophy violates reason. It violates the spirit because its philosophy violates truth and goodness. And it violates God because its philosophy violates all authority outside of self, end quote. That's a very helpful quote. So I hope you understand how you see music is, is, is a reflection of our culture. It's a sad reflection, isn't it? And you see that, how you wonder why different parts of the world have different style music. Well, it goes, goes well with their beliefs, doesn't it? Number four question there is, to whom do believers sing? Well, we already touched on this, right? The believer's songs are to be directed to the Lord. He's the audience to whom we sing. So, uh, our singing is not for the purpose of drawing attention to ourselves. (laughs) It's not for entertaining other people. Those are wrong philosophies. And in fact, one of my all-time great uh, musicians that I, I really love is Johann Sebastian Bach. You know he was a Christian, right? And that's, that's why it, on all his music, he, he talks about the purpose of his music. He said the aim of all music is the glory of God. That's the aim of all music. And so the, the words of every Christian song, therefore, then should be, if, if it's for God, to God, then it should be biblical. <laughs> it should be di- uh, biblical in the sense it needs to be distinctly, clearly, accurately reflecting the, the teaching of God's Word. 
It's tragic, though, isn't it? That uh, much music that uh, comes under the name of Christian is 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 a, it's a theological mixture. It's uh, often reflecting uh, much of the world's philosophies, sadly. But music, as you see here, what what is it supposed to do? It's supposed to be making melody to the Lord. So music that honors the Lord then is is in the process going to bless His people. But a, a beautiful, soothing piece of music can do wonders for you. It can calm your nerves. It can remove fear and anxiety. It can reduce bitterness and anger. It can help turn our attention from ourselves and, and our own cares and the problems of this world, and it turns our eyes to God. I saw this happen to me during lockdown. I was I was having a really bad morning one day, right? I I, I didn't. It, it was one of those mornings I didn't even want to read my Bible. I, I was sick of lockdown. I was having a really bad attitude. I was sinning. Okay, to be quite honest. And so then I was like, okay, what am I going to do? I got to stop listening to myself, and I got to preach the gospel to myself. So I'm going to use I'm going to I'm going to let music do that for me. So I started looking for for music for you guys to listen to, and God brought me to some wonderful music. Hopefully, you all listen to the some of the stuff that God brought to my attention. And it's amazing how how quick God used that music in my life to change my affections and my my attitude. The rest of the day was a great day. Because my attitude changed. I wasn't looking at myself and what was happening in our world, and I got my eyes off myself and onto God, where they should have been. Music was very powerful. And, and this brings up a, a watershed issue, an umbrella issue for a lot of people, is because the people pushing the contemporary Christian music say that music is amoral. Amoral. The letter A just means no moral, you know what that is, right? There, there's no morals, there's no morality. Uh, but the reality is, music is moral. It is. Uh, and in fact, even little children pick up on this. They know it. And I, I remember even little Hannah, my daughter Hannah, when she, uh, I don't know, three years old or something, I don't know, she's pretty young. She's like dancing around her room, and she's like, hey, hey, mommy, daddy, uh, uh, music goes... Uh, straight from my head to my heart makes me dance. Wow, that's brilliant theology from a three-year-old. And so we put that quote up on her wall. She understood intuitively that music affects her. Another one of my children, when she was young, it's interesting, uh, we found her cowarding under, like, I don't know, it was like a, a coffee table, you know, a little table in the house, and she's like cowarding, you know, hiding under there, freaking out. And I'm like, we're like, what's going on? Well, that's because the music that, I love listening to movie themes, and the music coming out of the CD player at that time was was from a very dark, horrible movie. Well, it was it was talking about you know the Holocaust and it's one of, from one of those movies you know horrible stuff you know the murdering of Jews and so forth, and so so the music was fitting to a movie like that. It was very dark. It was minor key, and so she 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 
trying to get away from that. It affected her. And so music is clearly moral. It affects us. And in fact, the Bible even tells us that's the case. And one of the prime examples is David. Uh, you remember David, uh, that's it, the one who became king of Israel, that guy. Uh, he was a skilled musician, a very skilled musician. And he was called to play in the king's court for King Saul. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 16 that whenever the evil spirit from it's interesting, it says from God. Evil spirit from God. Who's in control? God. Anyway, that evil spirit came to Saul. It says David would take his harp. He would play with his hand. And Saul would... It affected him in three ways. So physically, emotionally, spiritually. Because it says that, that he was refreshed. He was made well. And the evil spirit departed from him. It affected him physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Well, there you go. There's biblical proof that music affects us. It can't be amoral. It has to be moral. Anyway, I could really park there because that's one of my pet peeves. But if you want to talk more about that later, I'm happy to do so. But clearly music is not amoral. It affects us. But then moving on, we we see a, a third mark of the Spirit's control in our lives. We see here that a Spirit-controlled person gives thanks to God. Spirit-controlled person gives thanks to God. So notice the Greek participle in verse 20. As you see it, it's ending in I-G. It's giving thanks. Giving thanks. When are we to be thankful, though? How often should we be thankful? Isn't it interesting? My Bible says, always. There's your answer. God says you are to always be giving thanks to Him. So the idea is there is it's regularly, it's constantly, and to be thankful always is to recognize God's control in our lives in all the details. Now on the other side of that, the other side would be to not be thankful. right? To be thankless is then you're not regarding God's control in your life, are you? We're to be thankful. We are to be thankful when the blessing hasn't even come yet, or you don't feel like it's come yet, or you feel like you've been abandoned by God. You're still to be thankful. We're to be thankful when we're undergoing troubles and testings in our life. Read James chapter 1. We're to consider ourselves blessed when we go through testing and trials. So that's when we're to be thankful. The answer is always. The second question is, for what are then we to be thankful? Notice the answer in your Bible is for the things I like, right? No, it doesn't say that. if, If I was writing the Bible, that's probably what I would have put, but I didn't write the Bible, did I? The Holy Spirit does, and He says, we're to be thankful for everything. That's including the things I don't like. Now, how can we always give thanks for everything? I mean, just think about that. Are we to give thanks for murder and for child abuse and for abortion and, you know, everything like that? By the way, the answer to that question has to be no. No. 
We cannot speak with God's Spirit and at the same time praise Him for, for the very things that God hates. Yes, the extent of our praise is to be always, and yes, it says for everything, but there is a context for that thanksgiving. Notice, what's the context? Well, look at your Bible. It, it, it is to be in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? <laughs> in other words, we are to praise God for everything that hallows His name for the very things that honor and magnify the very name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if, if something is not hallowing His name and not honoring and magnifying His name, then, then no, you should not be giving thanks for that. Absolutely not. We're to be thankful for the Lord Himself, who of course is the greatest treasure and gift that you've ever received. We're to be thankful for God's goodness, for His love, His grace, His salvation, all the blessings that, that He gives to us. Yes, be thankful for those things. And, and, and that's easy, of course, but what's the hard part? When God gives you a trial, He sends you suffering. He gives you pain. Yes, I understand, those are difficult. But He says, be thankful. How are we to be thankful? That's your third question. So, it says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it mentions name. Name there refers to all that a person stands for and what they have accomplished. There's a lot held up in a name. Remember, God had told, told uh, what, what Jesus' parents, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from, his, from their sins. So, there was a lot involved in that name. So the very reputation and the character and, and, and all that Jesus did is wrapped up in His name. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments is very clear. You're not to take God's name in vain. Don't, don't make it empty and meaningless and worthless. It's a very precious name. We're to give thanks consistently for who Christ is and what He has done. And, and no matter what happens to us, it, it is going to turn out for our good. God says so. But more importantly, it is for God's glory. That's why He does what He does, for His glory and our good. So how are we to be thankful? Well, it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, to whom are we to be thankful? Notice we're to be thankful to God. Be thankful to God giving thanks always and for everything to who? To God the Father. That's what it says, to God the Father. Why? Well, let's look at some cross-references here. For example, in James 1, verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? No, not the sky. It says, from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay, Another one in Ephesians here, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So notice the connection there to God the Father. And so even those things that come from others... God is 
claiming that as well. It comes ultimately from Him. And so we should be grateful for what anyone does for us. We should be thankful uh, and by all means thank somebody. But notice when I thanked you for helping me yesterday, I'm ultimately thanking and praising God for how He used you in my life yesterday. I'm very thankful for brothers and sisters who can help me. But thankfulness to others will likely be little more than flattery if we do not acknowledge who the true source of the gift is. (laughs) Yes, acknowledge God the Father. He is the one whom to be thankful for. Well, there's a fourth mark of a spirit-controlled person. Here's what it is. A spirit-controlled person submits within divinely ordered relationships. Now, we don't have time to get into all that because that moves into chapter 6, which will, over the coming weeks, we'll look at those divinely ordered relationships that are mentioned in the text. But notice verse 21 is kind of like a general statement, and we'll see how verse 21 is then lived out in chapter 6. But verse 21 mentions submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I just got to mention this because I'm I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed by the cancel culture at the moment. And the cancel culture is going to hate a verse like this. They they will actually despise. If they know this verse, they're going to hate it. And somebody just recently asked me, what is the cancel culture? And And I didn't have a good definition, even though I've been listening to all these podcasts and reading stuff on the cancel culture. So here's... I don't think this is the greatest definition. Wikipedia rarely gives the the, the best information. But anyway, here's what Wikipedia says. Wikipedia says that the cancel culture is a form of boycott in which someone has shared a questionable opinion and has had a problematic behavior called out on social media. Then that person is then canceled which essentially means they're boycotted by a large number of people, sometimes leading to massive declines in the person's fan base and career. Uh, there's a number of high-profile leftists who've been attacked by their own people. It's, it's interesting. They just, they just devour and destroy each other. If, if, if you don't line up with their philosophies and their bad theology, then you get destroyed. So it's not just other... It's not just the Christians getting destroyed, it's even leftists getting destroyed by other leftists. Unbelievable. That's what happens in cancel culture. And, and, and one reason I don't like that definition is because it's moved past social media. They've, yeah, they've taken over the Internet, but it's moved into the streets. We see statues getting torn down. We, we see history being rewritten, right? And it's just gone, it's gone mad. The, the world's gone mad by the cancel culture. By the way, the next thing is you're going to see you're going to see book burnings, right? They wanted to, they want to rewrite history, so say goodbye to the libraries. Really? Wow. Uh, I mean, it's crazy cuz uh, you know they say there's there's uh, you know a pandemic of a pandemic of racism. Yes, there's rans- racism, but they've even torn down statues of people who were who were abolitionists. Right, and, and so then they go after Winston Churchill, you know, in London, England. Right, you know, people, people. Oh, it's just crazy. 
you know, uh, Charles Dickens' museum has been attacked. You know, the list goes on and on. It's not going to stop, sadly, because people are letting them get away with it. But anyway, that's what's happening. So, And, and so, my friends, you need to be aware that the world system is trying to press you into its mold. They want you to conform to their beliefs and their way of thinking. So just watch out because... Uh, it, it's it's happening in all sorts of areas of life, not just politics, but there's Christians and others losing their jobs. And even people who aren't Christians are losing their jobs. I mean, for example, I, I heard of J.K. Rowling, for example, who is not a Christian, the one who wrote uh, the Harry Potter series. She's a leftist, but yet she's been attacked because... She's refusing to sign up to the LGBTQ community's agenda and saying that God, you know, not, not God, but anyway, if you don't know that story, I can tell you more about it. But this is what's happening in our world. It's going nuts. And so we need to resist and renew our minds according to the Scriptures. Because notice what it says here in verse 21. You are to be submitting to one another. <laughs> Submitting means... A, a subjection to an appointed order, but the cancel culture doesn't like that. And this is interesting because this was actually a military term, it, which means you are to rank yourselves under someone else. Rank yourselves under one another. The main idea is that of relinquishing one's rights to another person. Ooh. That's what God says to do. Submission, by the way, has to happen in the church. It should be happening in our culture. It should be happening in our nation. It it needs to be happening in our nation. If not, then you just end up in anarchy. You end up in revolutions. And I've been listening to people this week that say there's going to be a, a third revolution happen in the United States very soon. It's a disaster. A nation can't function properly without authority. There there has to be authority. There has to be rulers. God designed government and rulers over us. We, we need soldiers. We need police. We need judges. And we need other kinds of authority like that. But a nation can't function without those authorities. And that's why the cancel culture is trying to say no police, or at least a lot less, Right? attacking governments, attacking any, any kind of authority. And so people uh, who, who don't hold that authority are, are leading us to anarchy. It's not a pretty picture. And such people do not hold their authority because they are inherently better than everybody else, but because without that appointment and without the, the exercise of an orderly authority, any nation is going to disintegrate into anarchy. We need to learn from history. I remember when, many years ago, back in the 90s, when I walked into one of the Nazi concentration camps in Europe, there was this, there was this big sign that, that, that said, uh, the basic idea was, you know, learn from history or you're doomed to repeat it. If we forget history, we are doomed to repeat it. That's really important. So I encourage you, go back and study history. Look at what happened in places like France and the French Revolution, how they got there, and what were the results 
of the French Revolution was disastrous for many places in the world, not just for France. And so this verse here has application not just for our nation, not just for cultures and individuals, but particular application to the church, even in family relationships. And, and you can see these relationships showing up in these next verses. So, for example, the end of chapter 5 addresses uh, some, some family relationships. Going into chapter 6, we're going to see some of these other ones here. Here's, the, here's where we are to be submitting to one another. First of all, of course, Christians submit to Jesus Christ. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the master. But uh, the Bible also tells us that, that church members are to be submitting themselves to the church leadership. The Bible tells us here at the end of chapter 5, wives are to submit to their husbands. Chapter 6 tells us that children are to submit to their parents. <laughs> and then chapter 6 also mentions employees are to submit to employers. So notice it's not because of some inherent superiority of, of the employer or the parent or the husband or the church leadership. It's not that we're better. It's the way God has designed it. It's a functional issue. So every spirit-controlled Christian, according to God, is a submitting Christian. You will be submitting to someone. The husband, by the way, who demands that his wife's submission uh, to him, uh, somebody who is demanding, is, doesn't recognize his own duty then to submit to... Um, sorry, I'm not getting this right. <laughs> the husband who demands his wife's submission to him, but does not recognize that he also has a duty, which we'll address in a few weeks, um, has distorted God's standard for marriage. You can't rightly function as a godly husband if, if you're not also submitting in a certain way here. We'll talk about more of that, what that looks like in the coming days. But, and then you go on to chapter 6. Parents who demand obedience from their children, but then they're not recognizing they also have a duty to God and their children. Well, that's not going to work. There's a mutual submission. There's a loving sacrifice that needs to go on here to meet the children's needs. Otherwise, the parents are disobeying God as well. So there's, there's a, in, in all relationships, there, there needs to be a certain mutual submission. That's what spirit control looks like in your life. But what's the motivation for that? Why should I submit to uh, the, these various relationships? Well, verse 21 says it's out of reverence for Christ. So wives submit to their husbands because it's out of reverence for Christ. Children submit to their parents out of reverence for Christ. If you're an employee, you, you, you submit to your employer even though he might be a jerk. It's out of reverence for Christ. Not because of how awesome your boss is or not how awesome. It's out of reverence for Christ. So our motivation in, in a, is a sense of awe, if you will, in the presence of of this one who is the creator, the savior, the Lord, and the coming judge. He's all those things wrapped up in one. So there you go, my friends. What does the Spirit's control in your life look like? 
well, it has to be at least these four marks, okay? Uh, it's going to be more than that, right? Because the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5 addresses more things like joy and love and self-control, just to name a few things. But these four marks here happen because the Spirit controls us. They're just the natural result of someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and yielded to His control. And so if we are filled with the Spirit, then we're going to be harmoniously related both to God, not just God, but both to God and to each other. I Kind of summarizing in short here, the Spirit's control... The spirit-controlled believers are going to do the two great commands that Jesus talked about. Spirit-controlled believers are going to love God. You're going to love each other, which is hardly surprising because what does the fruit of the Spirit say? The fruit of the Spirit is what? What's the first one? Love. <laughs> love. So if you're controlled by the Spirit, then you're going to, you are going to love God and you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is not an exhaustive list here in this text, but at least it hopes, hopefully it, it, it gives us a little bit of a picture. you got a few pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, if you will. You can fill in around that, but this is a good starting point. And so may God enable us to be spirit-controlled, to live out these marks of the Spirit's filling in our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for showing this to us. Thank you for, for giving us your word and your spirit and, and enabling us to see this and know this glorious truth. Would you enable us to uh, be controlled by the Spirit, to, to live out this control of the Spirit in our life so that we would please you. And of all these things, may we do it out of reverence for Christ. May we do it for the right motivation, the right motives here, be involved in this as well. Not just doing the right thing, but even for the right motive. May our heart be right in the midst of all this. And so, so may we see that this is really important to you. May we love you and live it out according to your standard here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.